So again, welcome. Glad you're here. For those of you that just joined us, my name's Alex, um, one of the pastors. And so uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. This is, uh, this is pretty great to be able to do this. Um, this uh, artwork that's displayed here, we've had it up throughout the Advent season, uh, is by uh, an artist named Scott Erickson, and it's Mary and Eve. And uh, basically, it covers the whole the whole story of the gospel. If you hang out with it for just a minute, it'll make sense. But just, if I, at any point in the sermon, start rambling and, you know, like I'm checking out, you can at least look at this. This will still preach the gospel sufficiently. So, all right, great. Um, so yeah, anyway, this morning, uh, we are journeying through what Megan just read for us, Luke chapter two, verses one to seven. And then uh, on Christmas Eve, we'll pick up and read from eight down to 20. So if you're going to be around on Christmas Eve and like to worship with us, we'll be here on Tuesday evening at 6 p.m. So, all right, with that being said, um, yeah, Merry Christmas. And for those of you that are, are new or might not be Christians or you're investigating the Christian faith or maybe you're invited by a friend or family member to be here today, I um, just want you to know that this is a place that is, uh, you're safe to question and explore and investigate what the Christian faith is all about. Um, and for those who have faithfully served our church all year long as members, I just want to say uh, thank you, thank you, and um, Merry Christmas to you. <laughs> because this is a sacred time of year, being together as the children of God, remembering all that Jesus has done to bring us into the family of God. Um, and also, to those that are struggling this morning, I know that the holidays can really stir up a lot uh, for a lot of people for any number of reasons. Uh, I want you to know this morning, uh, I've been praying for you as well, and my prayer for you uh, is that in spite of the grief or the unwanted emotions that you might have this week, um, my prayer for you today is to be reminded that you are deeply loved by God and that the cares and the concerns of your own heart and your own life matter to God and to us, his people. And so my prayer is that you'll know the joy of Emmanuel, God with you today. So... Over the last three weeks, we journeyed through Mary's Magnificat in which she was singing, celebrating uh, the fact that God had chosen her to carry Jesus in her womb and, and now bring Jesus into the world. She's singing and she's in a conversation with uh, Elizabeth, her relative. Elizabeth had just, uh, is about to give birth to John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer will then be the one who, in many years, in about 30 years or so, would be the one who would prepare the way for Jesus to come on the scene as the forerunner. So Mary and Elizabeth are dialoguing back and forth. And after John is born, do you remember what happens with Zechariah, John the Baptist's father? He was in the temple burning incense carrying out his priestly duties, right? The angel Gabriel appeared and said, you guys are gonna have a baby. John questioned, I'm sorry, Zechariah questioned the angel and the angel made him mute, took away his ability to speak, went out of the temple and motioned to everybody, I've seen a vision and I questioned the angel, I challenged him and he took away my ability to speak. <laughs> then once John is born, Zachariah gives the name, his name will be John, and he instantly recovers the ability to speak. That's where we pick up today in chapter two with 
Luke 2, 1. Here's what it says. So it's in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered to his own town. So it's in those days, shortly after the birth of John the baptizer, that a, that a registration was issued from, from Rome. So um, first I want to just point out something. N- notice that Luke is... Um, Luke is, Luke is talking in real space and real time doing real history here. That he's noticing, notice the names, the dates, the political rulers, people in power. That, and this is important for people that are skeptical, people that have questions, people that doubt like me. I've had a ton of doubts. I've known Jesus for 23 years and I have battled every single day with all kinds of doubts. And nothing uh, seems to just, like there, there's not a day that I wake up as a Christian that I go, you know, I get it. Trinity, got it. Creation, got it. Resurrection, no problem. Uh, Yeah, I get it. I get it. I know how eternity works. I got it all figured out. I don't ever wake up like that. In fact, I have more questions following Jesus 23 years later than I did before I started following him. Maybe you can relate to that. In my own intellectual doubt and skepticism of scripture and of God and of the world that he is apparently in charge of, I have problems with that sometimes when I look at the world. And you do too when you read the news. We do. Here's what I find to be so comforting is that when I read my Bible, I know that I'm reading something that's actually historical. That it's not just high in the sky, make-believe, existential religious stuff, but rather we're seeing names and dates and times and locations, and that Luke was committed to interviewing eyewitnesses reporting back to a new Christian named Theophilus saying, I'm writing you an orderly account. I've investigated this thoroughly, so I want you to be able to pinpoint when I'm talking about on planet Earth. It's when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and Caesar Augustus had issued a registration throughout. So when Theophilus is reading this, he's easily able to go, oh, I'm, I know exactly the time you're talking about. So registration, this is a big deal. I don't have time to go into everything, but I will tell you just a few things about this passage. Um, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Who's that? Well, Caesar Augustus, his birth name was Octavian. He was the grand nephew of Julius Caesar, who's Julius Caesar, the most important Roman emperor to ever live. Reigned over roughly from England all the way to India. Most powerful man in the world, Julius Caesar. He was considered divine, considered to be a god among people. He adopted Octavian into his family and then later uh, gave him the name Caesar Augustus. Augustus meaning exalted. Okay, Caesar Augustus became known eventually after Julius died and he took the throne. Caesar Augustus became known as the son of God. He was also known as the prince of peace because he had brought incredible peace to the Roman Empire causing various civil wars to cease. Son of God, prince of peace. Those are some interesting titles, aren't they? Can you think anybody else that has a name like Son of God (laughs) or Prince of Peace? In fact, when when, uh, Augustus ruled, when he would conquer more land, uh, they would report back to Rome, hey, good news, glad tidings, great joy. Citizens are now in 
under your reign and rule. You hear some of the language that's bound up in what we celebrate day in and day out as Christians, as Jesus is the son of God, Jesus is the prince of peace, good news goes out in his name, and look out, he's got a kingdom that's expanding, citizens now come under his lordship. See, Luke, when Luke is using these words, glad tidings, good news, great joy, gospel, all of this, that was all deeply, deeply, deeply politically charged language. And he did it on purpose. He did it by design to confess Jesus as Lord in the first century was a way of shaking your fist at Rome. It was not just something that you privately just kind of, I think about Jesus and I think he's great in my heart. To confess Jesus as Lord was a way of saying, I no longer agree with the patterns and the principalities and the powers of this world. Jesus is my Lord. It's unbelievable. And it came at an incredibly high cost. So Luke is telling Theophilus, this is when it went on. When Quirinius was governor in Syria and when Caesar Augustus issued this decree that everyone in the Roman Empire had to be registered. So registration was a taxing process. It was a very involved process. It was a frustrating process. This is not easy. There was not modern technology, obviously, that we could do today. To be registered, each in his hometown was extremely exhausting work. And it wasn't even a thing where you could just use the postal service. There was a postal service in Rome, and guess what? It wasn't in the favor of the Jews. <laughs> um, for example, um, if, uh, if someone in the Roman military is walking down the street and sees a Jew, you could, you could call out the Jew right there and say, hey, the Romans used to carry a backpack roughly weighing around 66 pounds, and they're carrying their backpack. If you see a Jew, you could then enlist them right there on the spot. Stop whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing. If you're working at a, at a bakery, get out here. You're gonna carry my pack, and you have to carry it for exactly one mile. 5,280 steps, carrying 66 pounds all of a sudden. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be day after day after day getting picked on and bullied like that? How frustrating, how much you must despise the Romans? Can you imagine? 5,200, right? Get all the way to 80 and then throw the pack down and walk a mile back to work. Later on, a guy named Jesus would grow up and he would say, hey, if someone asks you to go one mile, go two. So the world they lived in was frustrating. To be registered, here's what was involved. Yes, it was a way of collecting taxes, but, but it wasn't much of a tax. It was a denarius, basically a day's wage. It wasn't so, so expensive. It wouldn't break people's backs. So, but it was a way of collecting taxes. It was also a way of uh, registering men to be enlisted into the Roman military, for sure. But here's what was the most frustrating part about registration. Registration involved travel in very dangerous, hostile places, oftentimes. And in registration, what would actually go on is you would actually have to then sign a piece of paper saying Caesar is Lord, and I'm not going to rise up against his throne. It was a way of communicating to everyone on the spot right there. I can enlist you and make you do whatever I want you to do at any given moment. It was a way that Rome flexed 
and reminded the Jews, we don't respect you, we don't respect your God, we don't respect anything about you. This is the point of doing a registration. It was a way of keeping people in check. It was in those days when this particular registration is going on. Quirinius is governor in Syria, all went to be registered to his hometown. Okay. So the ages of people that would have to be registered, uh, any boy over the age of 14, any girl over the age of 12 would be required to register with Rome. This is why when people speculate about, well, exactly how old was Mary? Exactly how old was Joseph, right? This is where those numbers come from when people think, gosh, they could be as young as 14 and 12. Traveling through the Roman Empire as the lowest of the lowest people, poor, vulnerable people. Now remember, they're in Galilee and they have to go down, down to Bethlehem, which means they're going to travel through Samaria, which is a place of incredible hostility. I can't think of anything more dangerous. I can't imagine my children traveling through Samaria as despised people, nine months pregnant. That's just mind-blowing. So they go to their hometown. What would it be like to have your entire country? What would that feel like under this kind of oppression? So where do they register? It says, verse four, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is uh, called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Okay, so very quickly, Joseph is from Nazareth, a no-name town just outside of this little region called Galilee. Galilee is on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and it's basically nothing more than just a handful of small fishing villages and some agrarian, some farmers, but that's about all that it is. Uh, there's nothing recorded in Nazareth at this point in history. It's just, it's literally a no-name town. That's where they were, poor people in the north country. And it says, and they go up to Bethlehem. But if you look at a map in the back of your Bible, you see Bethlehem is south. Why didn't they say they go down to Bethlehem? The reason why they say they go up is because of the hilly, rocky, mountainous terrain in the southern part of the country. So when they are going to Bethlehem, there's a major trek. It's 3,500 feet up. Like they start, I mean, there's some, if you just start looking at some of the topography, it's pretty brutal that they're doing this on foot. And some speculate, well, Mary's probably on a donkey. There's no donkey mentioned. Mary might just be walking. It's 90 miles one way to give you an idea how far they're trekking. Pregnant, vulnerable, in Samaria, the middle of the night. And God's giving us his son. Yeah, 90 miles one way. And it says that they're going down to... uh, through Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. And if you start reading and you go, well, I thought Jerusalem was the city of David. Well, this is what, Bethlehem was the city of David. David, you know, established Jerusalem, but David was from Bethlehem in a little town. Do you know what the name means? Come on, somebody went to Sunday school. House of, house of bread. There you go. (laughs) The house of bread. Later, Jesus would grow up and say 
I'm the bread that's come down. So Joseph has to go all the way back to the house of David, Bethlehem, to register. So if you remember last week when we mentioned the covenants, all those covenants, Noah and Abraham, and right? David was given a covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is, this is something powerful. David was in a season of rest. War had ceased. David was prospering. And David was sitting back. And he was noticing in his palace how nice his place was. And then he got to thinking about God. And he started saying things like, you know, my house is so awesome. But God's, God has just this little tent I need to build something for God. I'm going to build something great. I need to build God a house. And what does God do? God sends Nathan the prophet. He shows up and says, "Um, you're not going to make my name great. I'm God. (laughs) I'll make your name great. You don't do me favors. I'm going to establish my name. And in fact, I'll make your name great. How am I going to do that? Oh, I'm going to put someone on the throne that's going to reign over all world universal history, and I'm going to do it through you. So thanks for the help you wanted to provide in providing me a temple. That's, that's nice. I'm going to make your name great. I'll do that. That's how God works. Lest any of us think that when we do anything charitable, that we're doing God a favor, that anytime we do something good, that God now owes us something, God is in debt to nobody. Amen, <laughs> right? That like Romans 11, what does he say in the doxology? Who's given a gift to God that he might be repaid? Like there's never a moment where God goes, gosh, Alex has been going for it lately. I should really take care of him, man. <laughs> That's never gonna happen. It's never gonna happen. So God's going to establish his name through David. And what's remarkable here is that in going down to Bethlehem, what Caesar doesn't know is that in this inconveniencing of God's people and even the mother of Jesus herself, Caesar has no idea that this is all done under the sovereign providential hand of God. Micah chapter five, verse two says this. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be numbered among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So what looks like an inconvenience And what looks like Caesar flexing his muscles, in fact, there's somebody far beyond Caesar, far greater than Caesar, and is providentially ordering precisely where his son would be born. Down to the specific location. So cool. So to be registered with Mary, verse 5, his betrothed, who was with child, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So Mary and Joseph are engaged. She's with child. And she's traveled 90 miles one way on foot. Um, I don't know a single dude 
that is as tough as Mary, mind you. Like, I'm sorry, like, for every dude that gets out of CrossFit this week and thumps his chest, you got nothing on a nine-month pregnant woman walking 90 miles one way, sleeping under the stars in hostile territory, all right? You just don't. So if you run around with like a tire over your head this week and thinking you're tough, you got nothing on this little peasant girl (laughs) named Mary. All right, so there you go. But she is with child. And so while we don't have every time to go into everything, um, we do need to just, we can't overlook who this child is. That is, prior to Jesus putting on flesh, when we say incarnation, what that means is, is, is something powerful. I'll just mention a few scriptures here. Listen to this. John 1, verse 1 to 3. In the beginning, or literally in Greek, it reads like this. En arche, in beginning. There's no article there. There's not an in the beginning. Why? Because you can't put a the beginning. In eternity, in beginning, wherever God begins, in beginning, it's like, okay, that's where Jesus, that's Jesus, right there in that part that's just beyond any of our comprehension. He's like, that's where where I'm at. Okay. In beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Do you hear the claim of scripture right there? Jesus is not an afterthought of God, not trying to be like God, not even just good at pointing people to God. This claim of scripture is this. Jesus is God and is involved in the actual creation of the universe. So this baby in Mary's womb is responsible for every star in the galaxy. That is what the claim of the Christian faith is about Jesus. That's who he is. Colossians 1 says the same thing in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things are created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, even Caesar, Nero, Pilate, All things are created through him and for him. Everything is created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. One more, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, listen to this. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the universe. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is what scripture says about who Jesus is. This is who's being carried by a 12, 13, 14-year-old girl down to Bethlehem. So lest we just think Jesus just showed up unannounced, with no power, we have to remember that in the incarnation, Jesus is the divine son of God who added flesh to his divinity. And that is how he emptied himself to get down to you and me. Wow. Then Mary goes into labor. And back then, as is now, childbirth can be very dangerous. There's certainly no modern hospitals or medicine available or doctors around. 
We know that Mary and Joseph are not upper-class people with indispensable resources available. And she gave birth to her son. Your Savior. The very Son of God Almighty now on the earth. Don't miss that this Christmas. Because of that moment, and because of this moment, everything will change. This is the moment that will divide time. This is the moment that will determine world history. This is the moment that will divide empires. This moment divides families. This moment divides people. This moment changes eternity, literally, forever. God's own son entrusted to two teenagers for love and support and care. And where he is born is not a mistake or an accident or some fluke thing that happened. God in his sovereign plan ordered that his son would not be born in luxury but in extreme poverty. Luke points out that there's no room in the inn There's no relatives nearby to take care of them. There's no friends. Not even a room to rent out. For the Son of God. So we worship Jesus because of the unfathomable steps that he took in utter humility to save people like you and me. Jonathan Edwards one time when he remarked about Jesus in 1736, he said this. He called Jesus the darling of heaven. It was the darling of heaven. God's own face. The very center of the angel's worship is now born in an animal stall. So it's for our redemption. Jesus was born outside. Jesus was born away from the people. Jesus was born in a shameful place. He owns all the stars and all the cows on a thousand hills and even the cows in the stall next to him. And so Jesus was born in an animal stall. The God who is everywhere suddenly had nowhere to go. Jerome, the early church theologian, said it this way in 347 AD. He found no room in the Holy of Holies that shone with gold, Precious stones, pure silk and silver. He is not born in the midst of gold and riches, but in the midst of dung, in a stable where our sins were filthier than the dung. He is born on a dunghill in order to lift up those who come from it. And he quotes Psalms. From the dunghill, he lifts the poor. I don't know. Um, I've, I've mentioned this a few times this year, but I feel like it's important to remind us again that in saving us, God did not send an angel 
God sent his son. And in sending his son, he didn't take the step down from being face to face with God Almighty in heaven and come down as a king, born in a palace, in incredible power. But Jesus took on the form of a servant and went as low as he possibly could to the poorest people in the most destitute of places. Jesus stooped as low as he possibly could to find me and you. He's perfect. He's beautiful. He's beyond, this moment in time is so beyond commentary. (laughs) It just feels so silly to even try to preach. (laughs) It's so breathtaking. It's like the resurrection. What do you say about a God who would give his son to us? (laughs) His darling. What's it intended to do to us? What are we to learn? What do we take away from that scene? If nothing else, it is to humble us. For those of us who are proud and selfish or entitled, it reminds us that where Jesus found us and to keep us sober before him. And if you're in a state of utter despair or depression and are just at your wit's end and you're at the very end, this good news of the gospel lifts you up and brings you into a place of belonging. Everyone before Jesus is so equal. (laughs) All the things that divide us as human beings, we come together united because of who this Savior is. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. If you read the Gospels later, you know that Mary and Joseph were married and and later had a a big family. Jesus actually came from a big family with a lot of brothers and sisters. So this is her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger. The... um, One church father pointed out he was not born and wrapped in Tyrian purple. He was not wrapped like an emperor. He was wrapped in swaddling cloths with just scraps of of cloth. It's what the poorest of the poor wrapped their children in when they would be born. And so we see Jesus born and bound in cloth. Why is this significant that Luke points out this detail? All babies would be wrapped. Why do we need to mention that? Because Luke uses that word one other time in the gospel. And it's at the very end. In Luke 23, verse 51. Joseph of Arimathea, who had not consented to their decision and action, he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And when he took it down, he wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in his tomb, cut in stone, where no one had ever been laid. You see what Luke's doing here? 
Jesus was born on the outside and bound. And when Jesus died, he did not die of old age in a palace somewhere. He was executed outside the city, outside the temple, far away from the people again. Where everything good and everything clean and everything respectable and decent was going on. Jesus' whole life was lived as an outsider, though he's Lord of creation. Wow. So when Jesus was born, he was bound. He was bound in human flesh. He was bound up under the struggle of what it is to be human every day. He was bound up under the Roman Empire. He was bound to his cross. He was bound in his burial linens. He was bound in a sealed tomb. And here's why this is so important. Because our cosmic Christ rose again from the grave and removed the linens that bound him. He folded them up, as John tells us, which is great. Jesus, after rising from the dead, he's like, I'll just, I love that he makes his bed. <laughs> Like, I just love that detail. Don't you love that? Like, I'm just going to leave this tidy. Somebody else is going to need this grave. <laughs> it's so great. Oh, Jesus was bound, folded them up, and walks out of his grave. Why is this important? Jesus was bound so that you can be set free. You are set free from the tyranny of the devil. You are set free from self-hatred. You are set free from what other people say about you. You are set free from chasing vanity. You are set free from serving only ourselves. You're set free to love with all your heart. You're set free to serve with a smile on your face. You're set free so that you can give out of just sheer happiness and gratitude that you're one of God's children. You're set free so you can give yourself away. You're set free from the judgment of God. You're set free from gossip. You're set free from slander. You're set free from envy. You're set free from injustice. You're set free from the law. You're set free from religious performance. You're set free to walk out your salvation before God every day of your life. Jesus was bound so that we could go free. Jesus was wrapped in swaddling claws so that you could be wrapped in the arms of God. This is why we use words like glad tidings, good news, great joy, prince of peace, and son of God. And we don't use them in reference to Caesar. We use them in reference to Jesus and Jesus only. Merry Christmas. I want to invite Dan to come and lead us in worship. I want to invite Natalie. Natalie's going to lead us in our time of receiving communion and offerings and prayer. And so if you guys will go ahead and do that. Love you, Redemption. Merry Christmas.